Richard Holloway, until the year 2000, was Episcopal Bishop of Edinburgh. He starts by talking to Michael Barclay about his love of music and the importance of growing up in a supportive home atmosphere. In 1948, at the age of just 14, Richard Holloway left his home in a small town near Glasgow to train for the priesthood at an Anglican monastery in Nottinghamshire. Nearly four decades later, after working in some of Scotland's most deprived inner-city parishes, he was appointed Bishop of Edinburgh and Primus of the Scottish Episcopal Church. But in 2000, he resigned, unable any longer to reconcile his religious doubts and his views, especially on gay rights, with church orthodoxy. As he's navigated his unusual spiritual journey, he's remained an honest, compassionate voice, cutting through dogma, unafraid to engage with uncertainty and to celebrate our humanity. Richard Holloway has presented many radio series and written 33 books, the latest being Stories We Tell Ourselves, Making Meaning in a Meaningless Universe, an exploration of how we can try to make sense of our fleeting lives in a post-religious world. Richard, you've brought us music today by Rachmaninoff, Elgar, Brahms, Nyman, and I think your response to music has always been a pretty emotional one, yes? Um, yes, I come from a family of singers. My wife's a trained singer. My children sing well. I've always had a good voice, but I've been unable to read music, and I suppose it touches me emotionally, and I'm a very emotional character anyway. It makes me cry. And I suppose that's why music is the best kind of spiritual language, because it doesn't get at you in the heavy-handed way that a lot of religious language does, which is why it's now I prefer when I go to church now to go to choral evensong where I won't be got at by a sermon. <laughs> well, for some of us, music is our religion. <laughs> does, does that make sense? It does absolutely make sense, because it's it's... It's mystical. We are very extraordinary creatures, we humans. I mean, billions of years into the existence of the universe, we've come along, and in us, the universe is thinking about itself. Art is our greatest achievement. Music, I don't know how you put that into words. I mean, it's a bit like putting a painting into words, but it says something about the extraordinary nature of the human mind, the human psyche, that the universe after 18 billion years has started singing to itself. I mean, I don't know whether you take that except to sit in awe, I think. We're going to start with the beautiful Scottish song Car the Yows, uh, collected by Robert Burns in the late 18th century. Now, as you've mentioned, you, you come from a family of singers, so am I right to picture you all singing this together in your house in Edinburgh? We haven't had a Christmas together because of COVID for a while, but when we do, and we had one, I think, last about three years ago, when we're doing the washing up, this is always the one we end with. And my son has a wonderful baritone. My daughter, Sarah, has a lovely mezzo-soprano. And my wife, of course, is a trained soprano. So they give it, as we say in Scotland, loudly. <laughs> but it's a sad kind of song. It um, is. It's a song about shepherding. And my God, it's impossible to hear it without dabbing the tears from your eyes. Call the 
Car the Owls, a Scottish folk song collected by Robbie Burns. Richard Holloway, as I've said, you live in Edinburgh now and have done for most of the last few decades, but were actually brought up in a working-class family in the town of Alexandria, not far from Glasgow. Uh, what was it like growing up there? It was wonderful. It was very warm. I, I mean, when you're a poor kid, you're not aware you're poor if you've got loving parents, and I had very loving parents, especially my mother. I can even remember some of her endearments. She used to call me her wee ton of bricks. <laughs> so if you're surrounded by that kind of love and everyone else in the street is living the same kind of life, you don't kind of notice it. You just notice the love you're getting. And of course, the Vale of Leven, Alexandria is in the Vale of Leven, surrounded by wonderful hills. And I was a, a romantic bee hill walker as a boy. You were just 14, as we've mentioned, uh, when you left home to live at Kellam Monastery in Nottinghamshire to train for the priesthood. That's quite an early age, isn't it, to feel you have a vocation? Yeah, I guess it is. Um, my wee cousin died and the rector of St Mungo's Episcopal Church came in to arrange the funeral and asked my mother who I was and can he sing? She said, that's my son Dick. I, Dick's got a good voice. And I turned up the following Sunday and he turned this wee red stone church at Bunbury in Alexandria into a kind of high church Anglo-Catholic shrine, six candles, incense, the mysticism of that kind of Anglo-Catholicism. And it just touched something in me. I kind of fell in love with it. And after a couple of years, I went quietly to him and said, I think I'd like to be a priest. And he said, we'll send you to Kellam, um, which was this seminary in a monastic setting, which was founded to educate poor boys because uh, the Anglican Church wasn't good at getting poor men into the ministry it tended to go for the middle and upper classes and all of that. They're the ones that became the bishops. And Father Kelly had founded this order to train poor men for the Anglican ministry. And he said, we'll send you there. And off I went at 14, fell in love with it um, and still ache for it. The building still stands, although the order um, is pretty much on its last legs, and they left Kellam in 1973. So, yeah, that's the beginning of the story. You were clearly strongly drawn to the monastic life, so why didn't you go down that path in the end? I was. Uh, the romance of monasticism, the mystery of Cistercian abbeys, monks getting up in the middle of the night. Again, I think it was all probably part of my romantic nature, this desire to give myself away to some big thing, give myself away to God. But I also discovered that there were inconsistencies in my own driven nature with the vows of poverty, celibacy and obedience, I guess. So again, it was a romantic urge for something I was incapable of achieving. Did you love uh, the kind of ritual, the kind of order it brings to life? And in particular, did you love the music and, for example, the plain chant? All of that. Um, the choirmaster at Kellam was a specialist in plain chant, Gregorian chant. He used to go and train other monks in, in the singing of it. And we sang the daily offices. Evensong was always sung, and then you'd have a, a high mass on Sunday, always to plain song settings. And I can still remember that 
evening in chapel, singing evensong, singing the psalms to that tone, and just feeling my heart bursting with a kind of strange, strange sad pleasure. And plain song still does that to me. Ian Barber, directing the choir of Belfast Cathedral in Psalm 114, when Israel went out of Egypt. The Reverend Dr. Philip Noble has many interests, which you can see on his website, bubblestrings.com. Today we hear him talking about different aspects of Jesus' ministry. In these talks, I want to look at one aspect of Jesus' earthly ministry, which is often missed. People know of Jesus as a teacher and a preacher, as a miracle worker, as a trainer of disciples, and of course, as a son of God who died on the cross and rose again to give life to those who believe in him. But the aspect I want to look at particularly in these talks is that Jesus was a person who noticed things and who paid attention in great detail to the people that others would walk past. They would be generally missed or easily dismissed. But let me begin with a story. During the Great Depression, jobs were scarce and when an opening was announced, dozens of applicants applied. On this particular occasion, they crowded into a waiting room, eager to be interviewed for the position of telegraph operator. The drone of the conversation competed against a steady background of dots and dashes. Suddenly the door opened and yet another applicant entered the room. After standing there quietly for a moment, he walked to a door marked private and knocked. The personnel director opened the door and announced the others. You may all go now. This applicant has got the job. Furious and frustrated, the others demanded an explanation. At that, the director simply said, listen. When the room became absolutely quiet, all of them heard the dots and the dashes, repeating over and over again the same message. If you hear this, come and knock the door. The job will be yours. If only they had been quiet enough. They might have heard the message that gave them the job. And the second story giving a slightly different view of silence and noise. It's about a nightingale who is very proud and 
He had a tree, his favourite tree, by the pond. But in that pond was a frog that croaked very loudly. The nightingale became so frustrated, he said, I can't sing against this noise. You won't be able to hear me. After three nights of being silent, there was a man coming along the road and called out to the nightingale, I haven't heard you sing for the last few nights. No, said the nightingale, but you can hear that frog, can't you? Oh, yes, said the man, I can hear him, but only because you are silent. Jesus sometimes calls his disciples to be silent and also to be his people to make a noise against the background noise of the world. To be continually aware, to see what's going on, to understand. And Jesus used parables again and again to wake up the disciples and to increase their noticing and the way that they would relate to others. So maybe today you'll be able to be silent for a little time. Don't worry about the noise that you hear, maybe traffic or whatever else. Let that be filtered out and listen for the deep, deep noises, the deep silences that are all around us. We speak to you about Jesus and about his kingdom to come. Ian Myerskoff is a member of Pitlochry Baptist Church. Today, Ian talks about the influence of his grandparents on his faith. There's one sure point of agreement in any conversation today that we're living in challenging times. No one likes it. Some old certainties seem to have gone forever. Everything in our Western comfort is being shaken. And the arrival of traumatised refugees in the Ukraine tells us we're only really feeling the ripples. How does faith respond to these things? Is God talking to us in such times? Could there be a make-or-break experience for us? Let me give two illustrations which have come to mind this week. They're of real people caught in traumatic personal upheavals. The first from a Christian background, the other from a very different one. A nice rosewood piano stool in our house is the only furniture we inherited from my grandparents' home. It has more than that function. It's not just an heirloom. For me, it recalls the last days of my grandfather, who I never met. I had it reupholstered when I worked in a drug rehab by one of the recovering addicts there, so it evokes his story as well. Let me tell you about my grandfather first. Like me, he grew up in a fervently Christian home. His estate agent father was also the church pastor. That can cut both ways for a son of the house. I know them both from my own experience. For him, the Christian road seemed too constricting. As a young man and his life as a design engineer in Barnes Wallace's airship team at Vickers took precedence over any spiritual considerations. I think he just parked that side of his life and it withered away. Healthcare a hundred years ago wasn't like today, and when he developed TB in 1922, he had to leave his job and wife and children for an isolation sanatorium for 18 months, probably working as a draftsman in a shared basement office of heavy smokers like him wasn't the best environment. 
That's a long time alone for anyone. His thoughts must have covered the same ground over and over. I can only imagine how the life of his childhood in a God-centred family, a dynamic church environment, didn't sit very easily with this new direction. I guess that time passed painfully slowly. Maybe there was a piano. He was a good pianist like his father. But it seems his life priorities began to change there. And the experience of many, including myself, is that challenging circumstances can be God's opportunity to gain our attention. God doesn't shout. So our own noise has to grow quiet for us to hear his quiet voice. On leaving, he was recommended to an outdoor life for his health. And with his vicar's severance pay, he bought a small field and two wooden army huts. One for the family, one for their new chicken enterprise. No electricity or running water during all my dad's childhood years there. It seems that his life priorities had begun to change and a return to faith grew in this very Spartan new environment. The whole family was affected by those choices, including my dad and thereby me in a generation as yet unborn. Did all that come from the humbling of my grandfather's ambitions? I would dare to say I'm grateful to God for speaking to him and to him for his obedience. His weakness kept him from military call-up in the Second World War, but he gave what he could, and he was, among other roles, a military hospital visitor to wounded personnel. One day he visited an airman who then died of meningitis. That was assumed to be the source of my grandfather's subsequent infection, which confined him to bed at home. There were less effective treatments in 1945, and he only left his bedroom once to play a Beethoven sonata on his piano before he passed away. He died in faith. He expressly asked that his funeral should have no mourning, no flowers, as he'd gone to the presence of Jesus. His wife, my grandmother, carried the same unshakable, radiant faith for her remaining half-century. I can only say their confident walk with God has strongly influenced mine. So the piano stool is talking to me. In testing times, be humble. Seek God. Look up, believe in him. God is for you. If you will stay listening and be obedient, try reading Hebrews 11 and 12. Next time, I'll tell you about my heroin addict friend. God bless you. Matthew Roger is a retired minister living in Ailith. Matthew is the local minister at Bilochi Church of Scotland. Matthew has a story to illustrate the importance of telling out the good news. The story is told of a young boy who was kidnapped. 
despite the efforts of the police and despite the willingness of the parents to pay the ransom, the boy did not come back and weeks later was found dead. There was, as you can imagine, deep and sincere grief. Not only the parents, but the boy's school friends were deeply moved. And there was a service to remember the young man at school. And all his friends sang a hymn in remembrance of the friend. And when the service was over, they came to the parents and they presented the parents with a banner. And on that banner was written the words, if this song is to continue, we must do the singing. If God's love in our creation, on our planet, is to continue to be shown in a way that will help all people, then you and I have certainly to take the responsibility for singing. Singing, shouting of God's love and God's care. And Jesus says that there are in our lives opportunities to sing and to live out the love of God.